In May 2023, President Biden traveled to Japan for the Group of Seven or G7 meeting. Following his trip to Japan, Biden had scheduled a visit to Papua New Guinea, which would have made him the first sitting U.S. president to visit the country. From Papua New Guinea, Biden was to make his way to Australia for a meeting of the Quad. However, due to pressing debt ceiling negotiations within the United States, Biden chose to cancel these two stops after the G7 summit. How has this impacted U.S. influence and relationships in the Indo-Pacific? And how has this impacted U.S.-China competition for influence? Joining us to discuss this and more is Dr. Michael J. Green, Chief Executive Officer at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. Previously, Mike was Senior Vice President for Asia, Japan Chair, and Henry A. Kissinger Chair at CSIS, and Director of Asian Studies and Chair in Modern and Contemporary Japanese Politics and Foreign Policy at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He also served on the staff of the National Security Council from 2001 through 2005, first as Director for Asian Affairs with responsibility for Japan, Korea, Australia, and New Zealand, and then as Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs and Senior Director for Asia with responsibility for East Asia and South Asia. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. Thank you. It's a great podcast. Thank you. So the topic that we're discussing today is U.S.-China competition for influence. And we particularly wanted to look at this in the context of President Biden's recent trip to Asia to attend the G7 summit. So, Mike, I know you're you're now based in Australia and you're very well tuned into regional dynamics. How did folks in Australia and the region, how did they look at the trip prior to uh, President Biden arriving? And of course, as you know, the trip was also changed because of President Biden's requirements to, to come back to the United States to continue to deal with the debt ceiling issue. What was the anticipation in the region prior to the trip? Well, it varied depending on which country, of course. I imagine that in Beijing, they were quite anxious, if not alarmed, because the trip came after a string of really significant summits with U.S. allies, with President Marcos of the Philippines and President Yoon of Korea. Both did state visits in Washington and issued joint statements, the Washington Declaration in the case of uh, Korea, that, that really solidified security cooperation and alignment. And that was significant because you know, in contrast to, say, Japan or Australia, Korea and the Philippines have been a little bit more neutral or ambiguous about strategic competition. The previous Korean government liked the term strategic ambiguity with respect to U.S.-China competition. But Yun and Marcos, while retaining, of course, their economic and other ties to China, put down a clear marker where their interests and their efforts would, would go. So that was important. And so I think people expected that the combination of the G7 meeting in Hiroshima, the Quad meeting, which was supposed to be in Sydney, and especially the newest piece, the visit to Papua New Guinea by the president and a security agreement would really cap off a powerful week of alignment and determination to resist Chinese hegemony. That was the anticipation. If there was criticism, it, it was coming from the left in Australia or from parts of Southeast Asia where there was anxiety about fueled, I think, by Chinese narratives about America containing China, provoking China. The same people, some of them, when President Biden shortened his trip, said, oh, America's not reliable. They're not up to it, sort of opportunistically. Thank you. 
I mean, as you look at how the actual trip unfolded, as we were alluding to, President Biden didn't have the opportunity to go to Papua New Guinea, didn't make his way to Australia. So the Quad meeting was moved to a different location. So how did folks respond to these two changes? Because at least in D.C., some of the some of the narrative discussion was this was a huge missed opportunity for President Biden. Yeah, there's an industry in Washington of some pundits and press commentators who who just see every little shortcoming as a huge strategic victory for China. And, you know, and you heard a bit of that in the region. It's just overblown. I mean, it definitely took some of the spin, some of the impact off that President Biden wasn't in Papua New Guinea, for example, or Sydney. You know, the images of the president speaking to parliament in Canberra after a Sydney trip or of, of, of being in PNG and issuing a security declaration, those images would have really been cemented in world media. And in the narrative about competition, that was a lost opportunity in the imagery and, and all of that, which does matter in statecraft. But on the substance, I don't think they lost anything. The Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, took care of the PNG trip. The Pacific Island leaders, the people Biden didn't see, are going to get a a visit and summit in Washington after the UN General Assembly in September. So it delayed a little bit. Some of the theatrics watered them down. But the substance was real. And the security agreement with Papua New Guinea is particularly striking because, as you know, Wang Yi, the Chinese state counselor, traveled to the Pacific Islands with great fanfare, expecting a security agreement, and they rebuffed him. So the contrast is pretty, pretty striking. Can we unpack that a little bit more? What do you see as the future of the U.S. discussions with Papua New Guinea? And how, if we were to try to project that five or 10 years down the road, where do you see that direction heading? Well, most of the security agreement with Papua New Guinea, and in some ways, you know, the the EDCA agreement with the Philippines, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, these are, say, in, in contrast to agreements with, you know, more advanced and capable militaries like Japan or Australia or even Korea. These are agreements about capacity building. And I think for Papua New Guinea, from their perspective, the most important parts of this security agreement are measures that would strengthen their Coast Guard training, their ability to respond to natural disasters. In past, CSIS has surveyed experts in the Pacific Islands and their security concerns rank differently than ours. You know, we would put strategic competition, nuclear proliferation, Ukraine, and things like that at the top, as would Japan or Australia. For experts in the Pacific Islands, including, you know, PNG, the top issues are things like dealing with climate change and dealing with illegal fishing and piracy. And so the focus of the security agreement is on capacity building and helping these police and militaries get better at taking care of themselves, at at monitoring their own waters and dealing with natural disasters and so forth. But this is a very old concept in international strategy because the ability of these countries to be resilient and resist coercion and resist illegal incursions shores them up. It makes them less vulnerable, less exposed to Chinese coercion. And so that's a big security plus for the US, Australia, Japan, India, uh, and others that resilience and that ability to have the awareness and capacity to resist low-level coercion and, and incursions, plus the security relationships 
that the U.S. Coast Guard military State Department will develop are really key. I was in the White House when the Quad was first formed after the 2004 tsunami. And that really, to be honest, came down to personal relationships that the commander of the 7th Fleet, U.S. 7th Fleet, had with his Indian, Japanese, and Australian counterparts. He'd gone to command and staff. He'd exercised with them. So in a crisis, those personal relationships are really, really important. So it's, it's a big deal. We haven't had anything like this in some time in that part of the world. And when you look at this in the context of U.S.-China competition for influence in the region, as you mentioned, this is a, in many ways a big deal for the United States. But would you also characterize it as a big win in terms of, as you mentioned, Wang Yi's attempt to increase Chinese influence in the area? Or is this one critical win for the United States that could set up the stage for future wins? Well, there, there's it's a win, but, but I think you, uh, the administration does have to be careful. The media and the experts do have to be careful not to measure U.S.-China relations like it's a baseball game where there's a winner and loser. There's a couple risks with that. One risk is you can fail to prioritize. You can look at everything China's doing everywhere. And if they're getting some trade agreement or advantage and you think it's a loss, you're going to expend limited resources on multiple fronts. And the U.S. has got to prioritize strategically what matters. And embassies and Indo-PACOM have got to prioritize what matters. And we're not going to you know, succeed in stabilizing the region if we're playing whack-a-mole and dealing with every single Chinese diplomatic move. So you got to be careful about that. The second thing you really have to be careful about is, as people say all the time, most of these countries don't want to choose. And what was successful, I think, and important about the agreement with Papua New Guinea and really a model for the future is this was not an agreement about freezing out China. And in some ways, it wasn't even an agreement about American access, although it has that advantage. The core of the agreement is about helping Papua New Guinea with its security concerns. It has nothing to do with who wins and who loses from the perspective of most people in Papua New Guinea. It's it's who's helping them deal with challenges. And, and it has the obvious side effect that in the broader narrative, the region can see who's got influence. And as I said, it gives really important, you know, personal connectivity for our diplomats and, and military officials. But that's got to be always seen as a side effect for a country that's not a treaty ally like Papua New Guinea. So I think they handle that well. And then the third risk, which you'd know more about, but and I don't think it's a reason not to do it, but my sense is Beijing's reaction to the trip, particularly Xi Jinping's speech in the wake of the trip, was a little bit anxious, a little bit, you know, so every success is being used, I think, within Zhongnanghai to argue for more coercion in China, more, you know, authoritarianism, more military risk taking. It There is, that's not a reason not to do it. We have to live with risk, but there is that dimension. Uh, the, you know, wins, especially if they really look like wins, and I think the success of the trip in a way can be measured by the Chinese response. There is a Chinese response. And it's not a reason not to do it, but you just have to be prepared for that. Right. And that's a good segue to go back to the the G7 summit, as well as some of the other meetings President Biden had uh, while he was in Japan, including, as you mentioned, the the uh, the Quan meeting, as well as the bilat, as well as trilat. I mean, when you look at all the engagements President Biden had, it's really a very, very robust agenda he had, despite only being on the ground for a shorter period of time. 
Some of the commentary that folks have written about, particularly the G7 meeting and the statement has been that it is in many ways adopted a more moderate tone on China, um, including emphasizing areas of cooperation with China more than the prior, some of the prior statements. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think that's right. And if I can briefly self-advertise, the U.S. Study Center hosted Kurt Campbell and Mira Raphooper and Edgar Kagan from the NSC to give a debrief on the trip. And one of the things that was most interesting and I think accurate was they really credited Prime Minister Kishida and Japan with leadership in the G7 and the Quad and really setting the right tone. There is not complete unity, at least rhetorically, among the G7 and the Quad members in terms of what this competition is aiming to achieve. And the U.S. rhetoric, official declaratory policy, emphasizes defending our interests and intense competition, but does not add an element that the Japanese, Korean, Australian and European allies add, which is, we do want to get along with China. We do, as the Japanese ruling party's strategic documents said, we seek ultimately a productive relationship with China. And then at the other extreme, you kind of had Macron, you know, freelancing and sort of throwing Taiwan under the bus and saying that, you know, that's not an issue for Europe, which was incredibly unhelpful. And by the way, I, I, I can tell quite shocking and problematic for his own government. The KDLSA and the defense uh, ministry were not, they, they were not in agreement with their own leader. But you had these, you know, general movement of all the G7 quad countries towards a tough line on China, but lack of unity on some pretty important fundamentals in terms of what we're ultimately trying to achieve, and then a lack of clarity on what we think economic coercion is, what we think we need to do about export controls. Going into the G7, and I think that with Japan's help, because Japan is at once both the toughest and in some ways the most economically dependent, not not to be fair, more than China, Korea or Australia, but pretty, you know, 30 some percent of Japan's trade is with China. So the Japanese have that economic interdependence more than twice as much as a percentage of their trade than the U.S. has. On the one hand, on the other hand, you know, under Abe, it was Japan pushing hardest for the Quad and the G7 and the U.S.-Japan alliance to counter China. So they're both the, the, the goodest cop and the baddest cop. And, and in Japanese diplomacy, they've managed that without the kind of tension and contradictions the rest of us have struggled with. It helps to have competed with China for 2,000 years, so they've been here before. So that really helped define the consensus, the Japanese approach. And you saw Macron fall into line. You know, you saw the U.S. agree to a G7 statement that did emphasize the cooperation. And Biden in his press conference said he, you know, thought there would be a thaw. The Chinese rebuffed him, but he sent that signal. So that was all good. And then you also had, very important for the Japanese, a G7 agreement on countering Chinese economic coercion and a general definition of what that is. As our colleague Matt Goodman in the economics program at CSIS has pointed out, it's very, very hard to coordinate allied responses to Chinese embargoes and economic coercion. But there's now with the G7 an agreement that we should. And that, that conceptually, it was a big breakthrough, I think. Mike, could we talk a little bit about the G7 agreement on economic coercion and the definition? As you look at that, do you think there's enough of a platform as well as cooperation established on economic coercion for actual follow-on actions? in terms of if China were to take further economic coercion, that we would have 
some degree of unity between G7 countries to take action? I asked the NSC briefers when we did our event, and you can see it on the OSSC website, about this. And my takeaway was there's not a plan yet, but there's an agreement to work on plans. And, you know, a recognition that whether it's the multi-billion dollar embargo China imposed on Lotte and other Korean firms for Korea's decision to accept U.S. missile defense systems, or the many, you know, multi-billion dollar embargo on Australian exports to punish Australia for criticizing, not even criticizing, basically calling for an investigation of the origins of COVID-19. And and then the Chinese, you know, in Australia issued 14 grievances, but it was almost like the 21 demands that Beijing insisted Australia must agree to before the embargo would be listed. And it included things, by the way, like not funding think tanks that are critical of China. So pretty egregious interference in internal affairs. And the Australians got their backup. And both the previous coalition government and current labor government have said, no, we'll, we'll meet with you and talk to you about resuming trade, but we're not bowing to your concessions. And then, of course, European countries and now the U.S. with uh, Micron. So everyone's experienced this. And it's changed. When the Koreans were embargoed, and even when the Australians were initially embargoed, there were efforts in the Congress to issue resolutions and even legislation backing them up. And their embassies, I saw at the time, did not want that. The feeling in Canberra and Seoul was, no, no, we got this. We have such huge trading relations with China. Bringing in the U.S. or Japan or others will just complicate it. We're going to work this. But it never worked. The Koreans still are under an embargo, like, what, a decade later or something. So I think there's recognition, you know, we, to, to quote, was it Ben Franklin, we either hang together or we hang separately. And so that's a pretty important breakthrough. The mechanics are tricky. I think the Australians, for example, and others would like to use the World Trade Organization, but the U.S. has been out without leave, you know, out of school on that one. We're not active in that. We're actually in some ways undermining the WTO. There could be, you know, discussion of counter sanctions or even just joint statements. I think there's a menu it's tricky because the laws are different in all the countries and restricting private company activities without some basis in law is tricky for most of the countries we're talking about. Right, right. It's a, a very difficult topic. And and you were mentioning responding to Chinese coercion after it's occurred. But a, the reality that we faced is that a number of countries are wary of taking steps that might anger China, right? So there is a degree of, what do you call it, self-censorship, you can't really get to that yet, right? We're still at the stage of, okay, so if China does do something that is coercive against another country, we can respond to that. But we can't really get to stage of how do you counter sort of the self-censorship because of a fear that China might take action? Yeah, I think there's some of that to be sure. And one important effect of the G7 statement or these kinds of government positions is it sends a signal to the, to the private sector and says to them, there's danger, you'll be economically coerced. And of course, you know, this is all happening against the backdrop of much more aggressive Chinese crackdowns on foreign companies and individuals in China. Most recently, the sanctions against Micron, but the raiding of Bain and other firms' offices, charges of espionage, and that's against the backdrop of forced technology transfer for foreign direct investment. And so I think that a lot of companies, big and small, are looking to de-risk. We don't call it decoupling in polite company now, it's de-risk, to 
to move supply chains out of China. And supply chain security is a theme for the G7, the Quad, the U.S. bilaterals. I think when they first met to talk about supply chain security, a lot of the officials didn't know exactly what a supply chain was, but they were signaling that companies have to be careful and that it's these governments' collective judgment that they're at risk. And I think that is going to accelerate a trend that began with Japanese investment 20 years ago and now is going worldwide, which is, you know, de-risking, you know, moving to India or Vietnam or reshoring at home production because there's too much danger of disruption in China and then also higher higher labor costs and all kinds of political uncertainty. So the, the signal from the governments probably was received in boardrooms with a lot of people saying, yeah, I thought so. It kind of, you know, I'm sure, I know that in many boardrooms there are debates about how much to de-risk. This signal from government says, we're telling you, it's risky. Right. Could we unpack de-risk a bit? I know conceptually what that means, and it and it is it seems to be more of a middle ground compared to those calling for a couple complete decoupling or even using the word decouple. But I've also heard from some of our allies and partners in the region that. It's a new term that better captures what the United States wants, or as well as some of our allies and partners want to happen, but it doesn't really fundamentally actually change what we're doing. Yeah, I think decoupling uh, implies more of a geopolitical and adversarial framing, and, and even evokes in some ways containment or for the historically minded, you know, the 1930s when the U.S., you know, cut off trade with Japan, which was one of the drivers of the Second World War, was trading blocks. So decoupling has a more menacing sound to it, yeah, even though in many ways it's an accurate description of what was happening. De-risking, I think, is preferred and big big uh, consulting firms like PricewaterhouseCooper and Accenture use de-risking because it's a little bit more economically focused. So there are a lot of risks in China, but that includes labor costs, energy inputs, the environment. So it's a little less, it looks a little bit less like companies are doing the bidding of the U.S. government for geopolitical purposes. It looks a little more like rational economic behavior rather than geopolitical behavior. And probably I think it's aimed to also connote what we found in our CSIS polls two years ago and in polls we did last year here at the U.S. Studies Center in Australia, that about 80% of Americans, the public, Australians, Japanese, Europeans, they don't want decoupling. They, they want to keep trading in, in things that make them rich, like exporting soybeans from the U.S. or exporting wine and, and timber from Australia. Those are not you know, geopolitically critical. But our surveys also found two-thirds of the public is supportive of reducing dependence on China, especially in tech, and, and supports things like blocking Huawei from having access to critical infrastructure for telecommunications in their countries or limiting high-end semiconductors. That, that, that is a somewhat narrow, narrow decoupling. We have a bit of friction with our allies because while the, while the official administration position is to put export controls on high-end semiconductor manufacturing equipment, and we're really talking at most six, seven companies in the world, almost all of them are Dutch, Japanese, Korean, American, Taiwanese. And we're talking about keeping the Chinese from reverse engineering and getting advantages that will allow them to leapfrog in artificial intelligence where they are, you know, 10, 15 years behind in semiconductor fabrication technology. So that's pretty targeted. 
and that's the policy. And it's not even, I mean, the White House is is letting the Dutch and the Japanese and Koreans come up with their own approach. They're not, they're not sanctioning them from Washington, although there's that intimation. But at the same time, in Congress and within parts of the administration, you have debates about screening all investment in China and much more draconian. And there are some in the administration of Congress who think the point is not to protect our technological edge, but to strangle China's competition. And that last part is not where Japan, Korea, Taiwan, of course, Australia, Germany are going to go. And since there's a little ambiguity in the U.S. debate about where we're going to end up, that is a point of friction with the allies. But the idea that we are cutting off all semiconductor exports to things like that is just not true. It's limited. It's targeted. It's painful for China, but it's 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 you know it's it's more de-risking than decoupling, I suppose. Right, right. Thank you. I also want to follow up on, in addition to the G7 summit, there were also meetings of Quad leaders, meeting the trilateral meeting between U.S., ROK, Japan, and of course a U.S.-Japan bilat. From your perspective, looking at these other meetings, were there anything uh, significant that stood out from either any of those meetings that that really added to or supplemented the G7 summit? So, the, yes, definitely. And while the administration got criticism for cutting the trip short, as they knew they would, I still think on the substance, this trip was one of the most significant in some time. You know, I was in the White House for almost five years and worked on a lot of these trips. For Bush, for Clinton, for Obama, especially for Trump, there was a lot of drama. There were areas where agreements with allies, you know, were being hammered out at the last minute where some official would say something in the country you're visiting that, you know, undermine the agreement or seem to criticize the U.S. I mean, there was always, there were always on these presidential trips to Asia, there were always lots of landmines you, you, you step on that you didn't anticipate. The, the big one for Biden was the debt issue and the negotiation with McCarthy and shortening the trip. And, and that, maybe that distracted the press. I don't know. But there were remarkably few points of friction in these summits. And in every meeting, they move the ball forward. So, you know, we talked about the G7. In the quad meeting, although it was shortened to, a, I think, a pretty brief dinner, um, everything I heard is that the discussion in the room, which is what really matters for the quad, it's the leader's personal alignment on strategic issues, they'd never been so aligned. Uh, you know, and, and, and there's never been such a, a, a clarity about the challenge from China. And the reality that what's happening in the Taiwan Strait or South Pacific or Himalayan Mountains are all linked. And so by all accounts, very, very strategic meeting, no arguing about first principles or what's the nature of China's intentions. A lot of pretty much thanks to Xi Jinping's clarity agreement on that. The Japan and Korea piece were really important. I, you know, our friend Victor Chan and I have been, have been, you know, working on Japan, Korea, U.S. trilateral relations since the 90s. The original trilateral meeting was the TCOG, created in the late 90s. And, and Victor and I proposed that in a briefing we did for former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, who was this new coordinator on Korea policy. And, and I remember senior State Department officials, Victor and I were a lot younger, saying, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> but that said, the trilateral piece has been hard because of the domestic politics and resentments in Korea and Japan towards each other on really complicated historical issues. In some ways, not so complicated as a matter of fact, but politically complicated 
Anyway, a lot of the credit goes to President Yoon of Korea, who took some courageous steps to reconcile with Japan and go not to the 50-yard line, not halfway, but really two-thirds of the way to meet Kishida, which he kind of had to do because Moon had retracted the prior government's agreement with Japan. So the Japanese were very suspicious that any agreement on historical issues would be pocketed by Seoul and then they'd, you know, take it back, which is essentially what happened with the Moon government. And you knew that. And in the end, he went further than Kishida to reach compromise. And he got some heat for that. But it was really good for Korea's geopolitical influence and really opened up Japan-Korea and U.S.-Japan-Korea so that there are trilateral exercises and intelligence sharing that we've always needed to deal with North Korea and China. So that was that was a the Japan-Korea piece was big and almost got lost in the in the in the stories. You know, Kishida and Yoon had their own summit afterwards, which was which was where they reached the deal. But I think the president played a really key role in setting the stage. And those were those were really quite important. And then, of course, Zelensky was there. And some people said, ah, you've ruined the focus on Asia by bringing Zelensky. I don't think so. I think it's quite the opposite. I think it shows that for allies and partners like Japan, Australia, Korea, Ukraine is part of the front. It's part of the it's part of the test of whether or not democracies can resist aggression. And Zelensky met with Modi, who agreed to play more of a role in working towards a peace agreement. And that's good because the Indians are not, like the Chinese, going to take Russia's side. They'll be more, more neutral, at least. So a lot of you know small, big accomplishments on the side. Honestly, the biggest problem for President Biden was not shortening the trip. It was the specter of the debt negotiations in Congress which kind of reinforces the sense or the question of whether America is up for leadership at all. It looks really bad sitting out in this region. I try to explain to people, you know, that sausage making in American politics, we have divided government, but it it doesn't look good. It really is causing some of our closest friends to say, are these guys still ready for prime time? So that I think hurt more than anything else. To your point, though, uh, that was that's probably something that President Biden can't control as much as foreign policy. But, but it still has a, quite a reverberating effect throughout the region. When this goes live, we'll know where we are. But it certainly, as we're recording, looks like President Biden did a really masterful job finding a compromise with McCarthy. He is a parliamentarian. He's a legislator. He's a politician. He's a dealmaker. And there was a hilarious headline somewhere saying, after complaining that Biden's senile Republicans complained, he tricked them. <laughs> but he can control it as a political figure. And to some extent he did, but yet it cost him a bit on the trip for sure, but not as much as the critics are saying. Mm-hmm. So just for the audience, we're recording this on Thursday, June 1st, but I did want Mike to circle back to the topic that we began with, which is looking at sort of U.S.-China competition. And you had mentioned earlier that China didn't respond very well to the G7 summit. And particularly did not take well to the critical role that Japan played in organizing all of the summit, but also facilitating, allowing for the other sidebar sidebar meetings. As we look forward to U.S.-China relations later this week, we have the Shangri-La Dialogue. And as you know, one of the major sources of friction between the U.S. and China was whether the two sides would be able to resume mill-mill relations. And we heard that the Chinese very clearly declined that for the upcoming Shangri-La dialogue. How do you see sort of 
the G7 trip impacting regional dynamics and then leading up to Shangri-La dialogue. How do you see sort of moving forward U.S.-China dynamics and how the region, countries in the region such as Australia may play a role in either working with the United States or China to help sort of the, the U.S.-China bilateral relationship. And I mean help as in I know our many of our allies and partners do have a stake and want the United States to have a, not sure what the right term is, maybe a stable U.S.-China relations? Well, I think the administration in its first year did not do a good job signaling to allies and partners that 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 the U.S. is serious about stable relations, even productive relations, with phrases like, what do they call it? What do they call it? Intense competition or whatever. Some of the theatrics of the Alaska meeting. The allies, not all, but but certainly Australia and even Japan, which can be pretty tough on China, were quietly expressing concern. And when the new Labour government came in in Australia last year, a lot of people were advising them that their most important diplomatic mission was to convince the U.S. to put guardrails or, or limits on competition with China. And you even heard that, as I said, a little bit in Japan. I think the administration adjusted as they had to. And, you know, Admiral Aquilino of Indopaycom, I've lost track, but something like 12, 13, 14 times has tried to get meetings with his counterparts. President Biden, you know, in, in the G7 press conference signaled his expectation that there would be uh, a thaw and an improvement. All of these things have helped a lot with allies. So the foreign minister here, Petty Wong, from the Labor Party, who is being told by advisors, we need to tell the Americans to put guardrails, gave a speech a few weeks ago where she said, look, the Biden administration has tried. China has to reciprocate. That's really key. And I think the Japanese and other allies are similarly echoing that. The the U.S. has what our friend Victor Cha likes to call the reasonableness burden. You know, he was talking about it in the context of North Korea, but allies expect us to be the reasonable one. But the Chinese PLA rebuffing Secretary of Defense requests for meeting the dangerous maneuvers by Chinese fighter jets near U.S. Uh, surveillance planes and so forth suggests that you know Beijing is cranky and is dialing up the friction. It's speculation, I admit, but I wonder how much of this, frankly, is the PLA, which is so dominant when it senses it's losing strategic influence, throwing its toys on the floor, and not wanting to play. I mean, I, I wonder how much to your question, and I can't say for sure, but I suspect a certain amount of the PLA's refusal to meet with Biden and so forth reflects how successful the administration has been, building alliances and partnerships up, and from China's perspective, containing them. Again, that's not a reason not to do it, but it does mean I think the administration has to think through how they engage. It makes a summit with Xi Jinping pretty important because you really have to sort of get to Xi. Yes, he is obviously much more closely aligned with the PLA and the Central Military Commission, which he chairs, than, than the foreign ministry or business. We all know that. But nevertheless, summits are so important for beginning to frame or put a frame around the relationship better because the PLA is cranky and mean <laughs> right now. And, you know, history rhymes, it doesn't repeat. But if you've read histories of World War One, the PLA is starting to sound like the German general staff in 1911 or 12, when in pursuit of the perfect military plan, they basically subordinated the foreign office and diplomacy to military planning. So it was absolutely stupid grand strategy and terrible diplomacy to think that invading Belgium was a good idea for the Germans. It was a good military idea to get through France quickly. 
But it was a terrible idea because it would bring in the British and and very possibly the Americans. And those considerations were never surfaced in Germany because the general German general staff, the Prussian hierarchy was so dominant. And that's what the PLA feels like right now. They're doing things that in terms of military strategy or operations have some advantage, but in terms of grand strategy are incredibly self-defeating and are leading to the kind of alignment that we saw in Biden's trip. Biden did a good job. Our friend Kurt Campbell did a good job. But the gold star goes to Xi Jinping for creating the conditions that made this necessary and possible. And to your point, I do wonder if the PLA may have overplayed their hand, thinking that because the United States does is interested in co- communication and, and where possible, being able to set a floor in the relationship, right? That they that they may have thought that the United States would be willing to go forward with doing more on the military side. But I do, to your point, I do think it's not the best approach because I always thought of diplomacy as a way to help address differences. And what the Chinese are doing now is they're, they're, hold, they're saying, because we have friction, we can't have the diplomacy. So it seems a little bit backwards. It does. And also, I think that the PLA's view is that friction is their friend and they can live with friction better than we can. And if we want to meet with them to reduce friction, from their perspective, that's giving us free stuff. If they want to, re- if we want to reduce the friction they're creating, we got to pay for it. That's their view, I think. And obviously, you know, with Congress staring over his shoulder, Biden's not going to do it. But he's got to keep trying. I think for alliances and alignment to continue, it's critical to be the reasonable party. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much, Mike. I would echo what you said, that it's important for the United States to be the reasonable party. But I think it's also really important for China to try to also be the reasonable party. So at least on that point, the two countries are have the same goal, but they're, I wouldn't say they're quite aligned yet. No, no. But thank you very much, Mike, for joining us for a very uh, wide-ranging discussion, starting from G7 to what's happening moving forward, potentially from the Shangri-La Dialogue. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, Bonnie.